Welcome to Sugar Nutmeg, catering to you a feast of Southeast Asian stories. From the spicy to the sweet, once that melt and once that pop. I'm Alexandra Kumala. And I'm Ruth Ferningo. In this episode, we talk to Abdul Samad Haidari, a Hazara Afghan journalist turned refugee currently in Indonesia waiting for resettlement. We chat about his debut poetry collection, The Red Ribbon, which is now the third best-selling book in Indonesia, as well as his love for Jakarta traffic. I became a refugee at the age of nine or ten or maybe eight, I don't exactly remember, after losing my little sister Hakim and my brother Abdullahat, uh, who was shot in the right uh, foot in between his middle toe. And then uh, I fled to Pakistan with my, my brother, uh, injured brother, old uh, grandmother, uh, Baba. Baba is my father and Ami. Ami is my mother. I, Baba, and uh, Abdul Ahad then fled to Iran. My brother took one direction and I and uh, Baba another to avoid a collective death. I and uh, my father were held in captivity for three months by human smugglers in Shiraz, Iran because Baba could not pay them. I was set free after I started getting them in the captivity because I was not responding. And I had a lot of traumas and I have seen so much. And then I was sent to Tehran, Iran by smugglers, but I was caught in a police checkpoint. I was then sent to a crowded camp uh, and then deported to Herat, Afghanistan after one month or so. I, however, managed to make it to Pakistan through Kandahar route, if you've ever heard about Kandahar. And again, attempted to go to Iran for the second time. And then uh, I was again caught and deported. But this time it was, uh, was life-taking, it was dangerous. The Taliban were in their epic power in the, in the country uh, during that time. The Taliban stopped I and my three tribesmen, Hazaras, in Kandakrisht area, uh, close to Kandahar. They shot three of uh, them. I saw two of them. And then uh, I saw the blood, you know, splash when they hit on the, for, on the forehead, oh, the chest, and uh, blood, blood splashed all over out of the chest and foreheads. And then I fell unconscious and then... Uh, after seeing, witnessing this horrible thing. And when I woke up the next time I woke up, I was placed in the back seat, the seat of the bus. Uh, it was extremely hot, uh, tiny and uh, dark there. After being rescued some el- by uh, some elderly woman, I managed to reach to Pakistan. I was traumatized and badly traumatized. Ami had to choose. Ami had no choice but to send uh, send me back to Iran for the third time after a couple of days. And uh, I was assigned to look for Baba and my brother. Though with that age, I did not know anything and I did not have any idea, since I was the only man at home during that time. Uh, the third attempt, I managed to make it to Tehran, Iran, after a long and, and exhausting journey. There I ended up as a, as a child laborer in the reconstruction sites without knowing about Papa and my, my brother. I used to walk 14 minutes every day going to work and 14 minutes back to my shelter where I made a bait out of bricks uh, and in an open space under mulberry trees in an open area called Ken. 
Uh, I used to sleep there in the cold and rainy seasons without having anything to cook or knowing how to cook at all. Uh, but Friday nights were uh, my favorite because Iranian women used to distribute warm bread called non-sangaki with dates and halwa. Um, beside a big masjid, I would sit. Uh, I, I used to sit there. I would collect as much as I could uh, to save for the next uh, few days. You know, to spend the whole week for, with that. The rainy nights with thunder strikes were uh, the most difficult time. I used to sit under a few meters of the balcony of the gates at the outside of the houses there. And uh, I would often fall asleep there in, that, in uh, that way. I often used to, you know, when it was so, when it would get so cold and the thunder strikes and the flashing lights were so high. And then I used to cry there. Uh, I was very scared. Uh, I would hear different voices, and I was too small to differentiate those voices, uh, and uh, or maybe those voices were ringing in my head only. I don't know. Uh, but that was that's how I survived in Iran. And uh, years passed. Uh, yes, years passed me without knowing anything about mother, my mother, grandmother, brother, or Baba. I was almost uh, on the brink of death because of hard work and aloneness when one day I met a stranger at the reconstruction site. He asked me a few questions and then, and, and then we happened to be from the same village, surprisingly. And he knew my father and, uh, my, and brother. He immediately contacted uh, my father and we got reunited at 9 p.m. that night and I still remember. It was, it was the best moment of my life and uh, we were just hugging and crying and it was, yeah, it was a little bit uh, emotional moment. Right, and this and is in 2001? No, it was in 1999. And uh, it was after three years we got reunited. And, uh, but I was again, you know, caught by the government authorities on the reconstruction site a few days later because uh, I did not have any documents. Uh, I was working separately in Sh in Shahran, a very small city, not small, it was big called uh, a city called Shahran in Iran, Tehran, in Tehran, Iran. Uh, Baba and my, my, uh, my brother, they were working another part of Tehran, I don't remember. And they put me in the camp again and deported me to Afghanistan. I made it to Pakistan and, and and uh, my mother did not allow me to go to Iran uh, that time. I en ended up in Pakistan. I completed my education there and returned to Afghanistan again in 2007. Uh, and I, was, uh, I started working as a journalist and remained uh, uh, an active humanitarian networker with a few NGOs. I, I worked till 2013 when, my, when Baba and my brother were abducted for the second time. Once they were abducted in 2010, uh, my family was attacked because of my uncensored journalism against the warlords, Taliban, corrupt government, and uh, also militia groups, uh, which uh, militia groups unreported crimes, in fact. 
Uh, Ami was beaten up, my siblings were tortured, and a few days later, the chief and editor of the Daily Outlook newspaper was also kidnapped. Uh, some, of the some of my colleagues were attacked. The second newspaper called the Daily Afghanistan Express was banned because of an article which we published was believed to be, to be blasphemous later on. And uh, the Sayyaf's Malaysia group, they attacked uh, that newspaper. And uh, I again escaped in the same year. My colleagues too, some were rescued by foreign diplomats in the respective countries, but I fled to Pakistan because I did not have enough time. After a couple of months, I then had to leave Pakistan too because I wrote several articles and editorials. Most of them were taken, uh, were, were, were put down, were taken off the, the websites. And I wrote those articles against the Pakistani terrorist groups who have been hunting down the Hazara people since 2002. I ended up in Indonesia as a stateless refugee with PTSD. And depression. During my stay in Indonesia, I was writing poems and then uh, also taught exclusively women refugees in Bulgur, uh, translating and interpreting for them in the hospitals, legal matters since 2014 or 15 uh, with refugee, with jet, with, with jet, with refugee service, JRS and uh, also translating and uh, I was also translating and interpreting for Swaka for refugees and asylum seekers with Swaka. I, I don't know if you have heard about the Swaka legal aid or institution in Jakarta and also translated the subtitle of two documentary documentaries uh, with Dennis uh, Bosnik, uh, an international photographer and uh, videographer. So that is what uh, was, uh, sorry, it was a little bit long about me. And uh... So, yeah, uh, no worries. But uh, what's the, the reason behind you coming to Indonesia? Is that that was the only country that you could go to? Or what's, uh, what's your reason? Well, uh, no, not, not in fact, uh, not honestly. No, I did not have any control over where I would. I where I would go but I was taken by I was taken smuggled and I did not choose the destination but uh, the directions and the destination chose me uh, I was sold more than 10 times without uh, knowing that yeah. Uh, I'm yeah so I'm curious like is that how it works that they just um, flee and they don't actually know where they're going to end up in uh, you know, most very few numbers, very few numbers, because all family members are living maybe in other countries. They may know the destination, but at the end of the day, it is as I said, it is it is not our choice, and we don't have no one has any control over where they have been. They will be taken. Even we don't know whether we are going to to, to survive or not. You know, there is ninety percent risk of being killed or you know damned to the body. Would be damped in the trench or something you know anything can happen so it is not a certain choice that you choose and go to a specific direction and once you're out of the home and taken and then you don't have any control over anything not even over your life so everything is uh, under the control of people who smuggle you and help you uh, get out of the the, the traits and uh, and so do you do you have a um an afghan refugee community in indonesia uh yes uh i there are there are a lot you know like more than 50 percent of the refugees are coming from afghanistan 
and almost I can confidently say that more than more than ninety five percent of them are all Hazaras from my own tribe. So I know I have been teaching them for some time. It's not only the Hazara people that are from Iraq, uh, from Afghanistan, but also from Syria, Iraq, uh, Ethiopia, Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, and uh, Iraq. So uh, several countries were coming and I was teaching them. Do you see similarities um, or differences between the situation that's happening in Afghanistan and in Indonesia in terms of majority, minority, ethnic relations and violence? Well, of course, well, uh, of course, that is the, one of the main reasons uh, the Hazaras are fleeing, not only Afghanistan, also Pakistan. And in Afghanistan, we have been persecuted. More than 62% of us have been persecuted. This is not a lie. This is, you can find thousands of articles and, and stories about that. More than 62% of us have been, uh, was, uh, you know, uh, cleansed during the Abdurrahman time. And since then, we have been fleeing. And I am the seventh generation fleeing. So I am writing, working with my biography book, autobiography. And I am the seventh generation fleeing. It is not only me or my father or my grandma, my grandfather, my father's brother, my my relatives have been killed, and my father's father's fathers they have been you know, killed, and uh, it has been going on the same way. And uh, against the Hazara people, the discrimination and persecution against Hazara people has a very strong root uh, to the history, and it has been going on for centuries now. It's not something about ten years, twenty years, or thirty years. No. It has been going on for over a hundred years now, and uh, it is it is a fact. Uh, it is a very sad fact, and Hazaras are facing the same situation in Afghanistan. Maybe you know uh, the cases differ from one person to uh, to another person. Mostly, we are generally talking. We are having you know we are fleeing quite uh, because of the same reason because of our being, you know, uh, uh, belonging to a particular community because of our religious belief, because of our ethnical belonging, because of our ge geographical belonging. And uh, these are the reasons, like, uh, yeah, some of the Hazaras, they are having, you know, different case or even can be, I can say, stronger, like being a part of the government or having a strong uh, political uh, opinion against the government and uh, being working or talking about against the government or warlords, uh, like I have been working as a journalist. And my case is a little bit different, uh, not only because of my ethnical belonging or religious belief playing the country, but also because of my, mostly because of my journalism that I have done in Afghanistan. Uh, so yes, generally talking, we are escaping the same horror, we escape, we are escaping the same and mysterious, you know, well thoughtful uh, kind of genocide in Afghanistan, which has never stopped in Right. So uh, you've been in Indonesia since 2014, right? Yes. So yeah. you must be aware of what happened with our ex, our ex governor of Jakarta, Ahok. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the? What do you think of that situation? I mean, the scale of uh, people protests around that time. Do you have opinion about that? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, well, I just don't have any political opinion about that. But at the same time, well, Jakarta is a very beautiful uh, city. And uh, anyone who asks me about Jakarta, in spite of going through so many things right now and uh, this time, uh, 
because of my PTSD and you know disease yeah. and transgenicity and everything. And I often said that Jakarta is a piece of my heart. And uh, seeing this beautiful city, you know, in a very, uh, in a very erupted or you know unease kind of situation really upsets me. And uh, yes, I witnessed that. It was a little bit scary to me because I just don't wish to see those things because I'm escaping those old things and I don't have good memories from those kind of, not kind of protests, but kind of situation we have. Right, so it, uh, it mm. triggers a little bit of uh, Yeah, trauma, it triggers right? not a little, but it triggers it's a lot. Big, yeah. Even people's reaction when I walk on the street, I often feel like somebody's following me, you know. Uh, even a small, you know, kind of... Uh, you know, if somebody stares at me a little bit, you know, just like a normal thing, you know, it always, you know, bothers me. And I'm always on God, even when I'm walking in the most peaceful part of Jakarta, I'm always on God. So this is something being developed during my childhood, and I don't have any control over that. So this thing is triggered. And mm-hmm. also, it is not only that kind of situation, but also the fire, the fire, uh, the fireworks, you know, thunders, thunder, yeah. and also... You know, flashing lights so these all things you now badly trigger me right it's it's interesting because um that ex-governor he was accused and imprisoned for blasphemy and that's also something that still exists in afghanistan that there is this thing called blasphemy and people can be imprisoned for it. In Afghanistan, it is, it is extremely dangerous when you write something about religion, uh, something about the warlords, about the governments, or about anyone who is in power. It is a direct invitation to, to a kind of anything can happen to you. And I strongly suggest you to, re- to read a report being released in 2017, which says, to stop reporting or I will kill your family. And it has been released by Human Rights Watch, and it is a very strong report, a report, and it details, explains how difficult it is for the journalists in Afghanistan. Do you feel like it's more lenient in Indonesia for journalists and people to uh, actually be critical about those things? Well, uh, I'm not in a position to be able to talk about that, to be very honest. I just don't want to put myself in that, that kind of trouble. But what I can say, some of my poems have been uh, taken out of the Red Ribbon because of the same issue. So um, that's what I can say. And I, I don't, don't wish to comment about this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Indonesian compared to Afghanistan, Indonesia is like a haven for the journalists. Like, and I don't see anything you know, serious, very serious, serious by being faced by the journalists. Yes, journalists are facing challenges. It is not to even one person, you know, say five percent uh, of the uh, scale of the threats and warnings and everything going on in Afghanistan. Every time I used to, I remember, you know, I write uh, something about, you know, about the government, about, you know, about women, uh, women's rights, because my field was women's rights and child's rights, and I have worked in the field for so long. And then I would write about, you know, the, the death penalty of the Taliban, the horrible people. And, uh, you know, sonning people to death alive and lashing people alive. And I have, when I used to write about them, and then I would receive, you know, calls after phone calls, you know, threatening me different ways, you know. The whole day would leave, you know, like, you know, going to kill me now. And I have survived that in life, you know, like, you know, for so long, since 2007, because I did not have, when I uh, arrived Kabul, I did not have a very 
good understanding about the political context in Afghanistan. So I was new and I have not grown up in that country. And I, all I had was a bad memory, bad, bad, bad memories about Afghanistan. And so I did not have a very good political, you know, uh, understanding about the political ground in the country. So I jeopardized my life and I jeopardized um, the, well, my family's life. And I'm not regretting for what I have done. I have been doing without censorship and, and I have been doing what a journalist is supposed to do and we both for what we are supposed to do. But it is the people, the bad people who do not allow you to breathe and those people who catch your tongue uh, when you dare to speak. Yeah, it is, it is extremely dangerous in Afghanistan. Indonesia, it is like hated for journalists. So, so when you say Indonesia is like heaven, I'm actually curious, what is Indonesia or the Indonesian government doing with IOM and UNHCR to basically help the refugees that are waiting for resettlement in Indonesia? Uh, I don't want to comment about that. I know it is a little bit challenging for the, uh, I have heard it is a little bit challenging for the human rights, uh, uh, for the human rights uh, at workers, you know, humanitarian at workers. It's a little bit challenging in Indonesia, I have heard that. And I just don't wish to comment further about that. Mm. I know a lot of challenges. I see. I'm curious if um, what Indonesia is is doing to help is also the same as other countries, because there are also other countries that that refugees have come to. I don't know, like like Greece or um, mm-hmm. or France. You know, I wonder if if what Indonesia is doing is comparable to that. Uh, well, if we go back to the history, I believe most of uh, Indonesians have migrated. It's one of the facts. A lot of Indonesians have migrated to this country, to this Indonesia. And so they, in the entire USA is uh, populated by the immigrants and refugees. And uh, it has been going on for, for centuries for in, in, in the history. It is not something now happening since 2010, 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, no, no. It is going on, it has been going on. And the first time uh, people became refugee was at the time of Prophet Muhammad. And people sought refuge in, in one of the neighboring refu- countries, which was uh, a Christian populated country. And then they embraced them and they protected them. Even the country, the, 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 that country, uh, I think it was, uh, <sighs> Medina, the governor of Medina at that time, I think it was Medina. I'm sorry if I mistaken that, mistakenly saying that. Medina, the governor of Medina, they sent people to return those people back to to the country. And that the the government of that neighboring country, uh, students said, no, we are not going to hand over them to you and we are going to welcome them and we are going to protect them because that is the basic, their basic rights. And so I think it has been going on in the history and it is not that uh, the cycle of refugee and seeking asylum began with us and shall end with us now. And it will go on. And so I don't wish that will happen. But at the end of the day, we don't know who's going to be the next refugee in the the next five years, in the next 10 years, in the next 15 years, in the next 20 years. We don't know at all. Seeing with this kind of situation that we are living, the best way is to embrace, the best way is to, to, to be kind, the best way is to be genuine human beings, to the, the best way is to open our hearts, our minds, and face this fact 
and protect people who are in need of protection. That's what I believe. And it's not going to end with us. We will die, you know, we will die. Refugees have died, people have died. We will die, it doesn't matter. For me, it doesn't matter if I die now or if I die tomorrow. I don't have anything, I don't have any hopes, and I don't have any mad dreams. Uh, and it will go on with the people. But um, yeah, the history will, will always talk about that. And people are there writing about the things or the treatment that they receive and the labels being, yeah, being stamped on the foreheads. So the history will change. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about the Afghanistan refugee communities, uh, both uh, situation and culturally, both in Bogor and Jakarta? Uh, how do you? How would you like me to explain? Um, you... Like, uh, do you guys have like a special event, for instance, once a year that you come together and celebrate something? Well, or there are programs? Uh, refugee World Refugee Day organized by mm. the UNHCR. People go there and we get together there. And uh, there are, I think that is the only day when people are uh, getting together, refugees are getting together in the umbrella under the umbrella of uh, UNHCR because UNHCR is the organizer and some other NGOs along with the UNHCR. Mm-hmm. Other than that, uh, there are events, but I'm not a lot engaged inside those events which are not related to my field in which I'm not entrusted and there could be some you know like sports games and you know some kind of you know uh, small activities to avoid uh, depression or mental illness or to avoid to pass or to kill one more day you know some sort of activities like that But do you think that children have the same opportunity for education in comparison to other Indonesians? Uh, refugee children, refugees, in, in, at large, we don't have a lot of opportunities. We don't have employment opportunities. We don't have the right to education. We don't have the right to travel. We don't have the right to benefit from the social welfare. Uh, and uh, we don't have a lot of uh, rights And so do the children, and the children also unfortunately fall into that category. And uh, recently, there is a kind of initiative uh, by the Indonesian government that yes, refugee children are also you know being enrolled, but not a very large number. It's very small and slowly. And so I have been in one of the panel discussion, refugee uh, focus panel discussion. Uh, with the UNHCR, Safe for Children, and Sunday Institute, where they we have been discussing about these challenges. And yes, the government, uh, UNHCR, is in, uh, trying to find out at least for the people to get education in in, in Indonesia, and especially children. Do you do you feel then that um, you are more active in like the Indonesian literature community and the Indonesian poetry community than the um, like the refugee community or like with other Afghan people? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think so. I have been, yes, at some point I have been actively involved in serving the refugee community since 2014 and until 2019. Uh, rather than that, in the being active in the field of literature, I don't think I'm overactive or more active uh, than other refugees in the field of literature or academy because I have 
I hold to this uh, background. And uh, I have grown up uh, hearing uh, poems being recited by my father from Maulana Jalaluddin Balkhi, who was famous by Rumi and uh, Saadi. And we have got Nahafi uh, Shirazi, Hashkitab, and a few other poets being recited by my father. And so I have been, you know, he used to recite sitting late at night with a lantern in between, you know. And I have grown in that kind of situation, hearing these poems and reciting these poems. And I had that, that I had that interest from a very early childhood. And when I was in Pakistan, I studied uh, a little bit and I started writing in a very early age. And then I have been constantly engaged since I, I, I returned. I was deported from Iran in academic events in Pakistan too. And it's not something in Indonesia. And then I returned to Afghanistan and I, and I was actively involved in the fields of literature and academic events there in Afghanistan. So I cannot separate myself right now with this. This is not something that I do out of plan. I have, I'm so strong. No, I'm going through a lot of, a lot of things and it takes a lot, a lot to be sitting in front of you right now. And it takes a lot not to fall down and it takes a lot to, to, to push myself to, to attend an event yet. You know, I really don't have that kind of energy to, to talk. Uh, but at the end of the day, I feel obliged to tell uh, stories, uh, you know, of the refugees so that people really understand um, the challenges and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the pains and suffering and miseries that refugees are going through. So I was active there and then I came here in Indonesia and I, and I happened to meet some uh, beautiful friends in Indonesia and I have good friends in Indonesia and I met Ayumi Uthuri, uh, Muti, if you've ever heard her name and I met uh, Putri Manansari um, who is a very talented Indonesian dancer, presents uh, Indonesia almost in most countries and Kowi and I met some academic people there and I have been engaged with them since 2000, early 2015, I think late 2014 I was engaged with them attending those events and going there and then they have given me so much space and encouragement and energy to, to perform there because I was always hesitant about my status for a refugee. But I have never felt uh, a refugee among them. They have been extremely kind to me. And uh, I always count on them. And I have uh, reached this label because of uh, the love and support I received from my Indonesian family friends. Right. How do you see similarities or differences between... Sharia law under the Taliban versus the one that we have in Aceh? Well, the Sharia law in which happens in Aceh is a little bit softer version of the Sharia law. In Afghanistan, it is a drug death. <laughs> that is the difference. So yeah. Sharia law, if you, if you ever happen to fall into any categories in Afghanistan, uh, if you're caught talking to someone, if you're caught having a cell phone in most of the remote villages, and if... Uh, 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 you walk with someone, when a stranger or a boy, and they talk, and they see you. So sometimes, most of the, most, in most cases, it causes death penalty in open area. They are the court. The open area is the court. They are the judges. The, everything happens, it starts on the spot and ends on the spot. So there is no delays. There is no this and that. So everything happens on the spot the same day. And then it is... Most, in most cases, it is death in Afghanistan, which I have not uh, witnessed in Aceh. Right. Sharia law in Afghanistan is, is, is 
like you put uh, a lot of plastic in someone's nose and mouth, hard to breathe. Mm. So that is how it is in Afghanistan to live under the Sharia law in Afghanistan because these people have no idea and these are illiterate people and they don't have a single idea of the teaching, Islamic teaching or Islamic uh, understanding. They are the laws, they are the judges, they act like gods. So yeah, it's really be challenging and different, a lot different elements. Yeah, I've read the news that the Afghanistan government meeting with the Taliban representative in Qatar to talk mm-hmm. about the issue that they're having. Do you have hopes about that? No, never. Afghanistan is not, never going to be stabilized. There's never going to be peace. And if peace comes, and it will not come for the Hazara community in Afghanistan. And mm. uh, the persecution against the Hazaras will never stop, will never. And I have been being constantly, constantly told by my father that, yes, peace would come. And I have been a child, you know. My father would say, my father was saying, you know, Afghanistan is going to be a stabilized country. And said, I lost my sister. Afghanistan is going to be this country. And, you know, we fled. And even in the other countries, he always used to say that, yes, Afghanistan is going to be, there is going to be peace back in Afghanistan. We are going to be back to our country. And so it never happens. And I'm 30, 31, 32, or 33 right now. I don't know. It never happens in Afghanistan until now. And it's not going to happen never until as long as this the system and as long as the certain people are working, uh, thinking to be holding the power, to be leading others, and then others do not have the rights because of their, you know, uh, population or something, you know. It is only a show going on, but once, just imagine once these horrible people come in, uh, in power, they are back in Kabul, just imagine the rights of women, the rights of, you know, minorities, and people who are having different beliefs, uh, stuff like that. They would not say, they would say, yes, we don't have any problem with these people having, you know, with the Hazaras or the people who are having different beliefs and women and these women and children, school for women and this. But at the end of the day, practically, they're not doing what they say. They are going 100% against what they say. That's the problem with them. And I have been in, the, in that political kind of situation, facing the kind of reporting about doing stories about this kind of issues since 2007. Do you feel that the world has a wrong idea about Afghanistan? Is there something that you feel is misrepresented in the media and you would like to clarify about Afghanistan? Well, there's nothing misrepresented uh, by, by, by media outlets and uh, what is going on being shown and even not shown even, you know, like not all of the things you know happening in Afghanistan is being shown. A lot of horrible stories, a lot of horrible things happened in Afghanistan remains unreported and people are threatened to report. And uh, even if they have reported, they have uh, faced serious consequences. So there are a lot of things, a lot of horrible things which remain unreported. There are a lot of censorships. A lot of censorships inside Afghanistan. That's the only way to survive. As a journalist or as a, you know, as a media person, you don't have any, any choice but to censor. Even the toll, the, the death toll, whenever they, they report, it's not accurate. The statistics being given is not accurate at all. They always announce, you know, very small percentage of that, while the real, you know, uh, percentage or statistic is very high. The world is not doing anything. Afghanistan is being destroyed and ruined by horrible people, horrible system. 
Uh, so you talk about that you're growing up with your father reciting poetry to you, right? But what are the things that inspired you the most to become a poet? And if there's any Afghanistan literature that inspired you? Well, uh, uh, for now, I write poems. It is because of my own mistress, uh, because of my traumatizing past, Bira and uh, very wounding life experiences. Right. Um, I write now to mourn over the unreasonable losses of my loved ones, to cry over my own helplessness, to fool myself, to ease my desperation, uh, to calm myself of solitude and back-to-back pain. Uh, that is what I write now, but uh, I have been inspired a lot by my father, so that is... Uh, that's what he instilled in me in the, the art of uh, literature and the importance and the value of literature in, in me when I was very young. And uh, the poets that I am mostly inspired by is Khalil Gibran, Hafiz Shirazi, Maulana Jalaluddin Balkhi, who is famous by Rumi, uh, the great Shakespeare, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Saadi, and uh, a few other writers and poets whose wisdom in literature always leaves me uh, in a kind of in a great wonder, in a great wonder uh, to ponder deeply how to learn more, how to bring that essence in me to grow yet further. And what is uh, your? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm cutting you, but uh, I'm a I'm a fan of Edgar Allan Poe too. What is your favorite? poem of his uh i i don't remember it's so dark uh, I, yeah it is very dark and uh, i i remember short stories the black cat and uh, the castle and uh, a few other poems which i don't remember right now i'm yeah. sorry um, no I, but i think that 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 is uh why i like your poetry because uh, lately we've been seeing like a lot of uh, poetry that are short, almost like haiku, that people can just easily relate their situation into that poetry that in a way it's universal. But with yours, I think it's just basically it's a story that, yes, I can relate, but it's not something I could grab because I know it's you, the pain, the misery, the tragedy. It kind of reminds me of like reading Homer in a way. Yeah, that is uh, something my editor also always used to say. And uh, and I cannot uh, complete what I feel, my feelings and emotions in a very short form. Not something, but I am not into Heiko because I don't think Heiko, to my understanding, can represent something. You read something and you swallow that, you, uh, you, you digest that. I think it is important to have an extra piece of information uh, instead of putting people into a very black and white kind of situation. Yes. Uh, that is what I personally understand. And therefore, I write long uh, poems and I don't have... I have a few short, short poems, yet I always write. And when I stop writing, I cannot stop. Maybe that is something I need to master about. No, I like I like your poetry. Yeah, we yeah. when um, Ruth and I were sort of like joking because 
now there are so many insta poets all these like instagram poetry that's not really poetry where you know it's like short sentences but then they press enter and people think that it's poetry but it's not and like your poetry is real poetry and it's also very specific to your story so it's not general and i feel like that that actually makes it a lot a lot stronger and i like that it's it's narrative and it's like prose and um and i like the long form i i like how it's long form actually i'm curious about how so in the nyu um the NYU reading, you said that you feel most comfortable speaking and writing in English. And did you grow up speaking English or um, did you learn it and then just started using English every day? Okay, I would like to clarify one thing about the poetry. Uh, as I said before, uh, I need to master a lot of techniques about writing and specifically poetry. Uh, I am in the very first state of writing you know, can't even dare to call myself a writer or a poet. And I really strongly mean that. Uh, I'm still a very basic writer and I'm still in learning pro uh, the process of learning. Uh, and uh, I can never compare my poems with other poets, beautiful, well-crafted masterpieces. And at the same time, the Red Ribbon is not the, the, the real version being published. It is only the script. Unfortunately, the, the Gramedia published the wrong version of the, the, the poetry book. So there are a lot of errors inside the Red Ribbon still, you know, horrible things. Uh, so in that clarification, I'm still, you know, in a very basic, you know, very basic state, like Gunawan Muhammad, I met Gunawan Muhammad, and I read his, his works, and Patsapati, Patsapati, and I read his, uh, his work, and, you know, met him in person. So this poet's and other great poets, I can never did compare myself with them, and I will never allow myself to compare myself. I'm just writing, you know, basic learning, still in the learning process, still need more encouragement, and also master a lot of techniques. And coming back to your second question about using the language, uh, well, uh, it, it is because I don't have a good uh, grasp or grasp on my own language, which is my, my, my mother language, Persian. Not Persian, you know, Hazaragi. Or Dari, and people mix up the Farsi and Persian, you know, in total because they are totally different. And uh, most of my life has been wandering around across across the borders. I grew up in other countries as a refugee in Pakistan. I studied English academically. I was trained practicing writing in English. Uh, when I returned to Afghanistan in 2007, after I thought that there was peace, peace came in Afghanistan, and that I would it would be safe for me uh, to go there and to be a part of the reconstruction to my war-torn country. I started my career again as a journalist using this language, English. I used English on the, uh, on the working with foreign NGOs. Uh, all the community newsletters, progress reports and assessments and surveys that I did were in English, unlike my mother language. I lost it. So that is the reason. So in, in Afghanistan, um, the the two languages that are being used are Dari and Pashto, right? Yes. And and so I wonder like how how that works over there with with two languages. Um, like what is the national language that people use? 
both of them are the national languages, Pashto and Dari. Uh, and so both of them are actively used in Afghanistan. And so both of them are beautiful languages at the same time. I see. And we have got uh, Rumi coming from that country, mm -hmm. writing from the same, in the same language. Most of his work has been translated uh, in English and other languages, which you lose the essence of real uh, poems being written in the first language. So it's a lot different, you know. So yes, actively used and actively the national language spoke. So that means people in Afghanistan, basically like kids grow up speaking and learning two languages. Uh, in some situation, yes. In some situation, not. Like in most uh, places, it is, you know, compulsory to study, yet people do not speak it, cannot speak it. They can speak Pashto, <clears throat> they cannot speak Dari. Uh, Dari speaking people can speak uh, Pashto, they cannot speak, and uh, they can speak Dari, but they cannot speak Pashto. So... It's, it's, you know, different kind of situations. And I'm sure there might be people in Indonesia who will speak Japanese and may not be able to speak the Hasa Indonesia, uh, might be speaking another in other dialects in Indonesia, but might not be able to speak in the Hasa Indonesia dialect. Yeah. So that's what I, that is similar cases. Right now. And, and how, did, how did you learn Bahasa Indonesia? Uh, well, uh, uh, I'm always eager to learn Bahasa Indonesia, but all my Indonesian friends are coming from similar kind of backgrounds, you know, academic or, you know, it's kind of kind of backgrounds. All of them interact with me in, in English and uh, they made the life easier for me. Uh, at the same time, I have lost the natural confidence to try Bahasa Indonesia. Concerned that I offend my friends with my broken Bahasa Indonesia. Uh, well, this did not uh, benefit me much, uh, though. Uh, I feel so embarrassed to say I speak very little uh, in Bahasa Indonesia, so not very well. Well, so when you, because you live in Bogor, right? How do you communicate with people usually when you go well, to grocery store, for instance? And I used to, you know, communicate, you know, very little with, uh, with my landlord, Ibu, and I still, I'm living right now in Jakarta, so ah. I'm not living in Bogor anymore. And then I used to speak to them that broken Bahasa Indonesia ID, you know, barely can build communication, making a you know, gesture and some facial expressions or pointing to things correctly to, to make them understand. Uh, just little, you know, I was, yeah, talking to my neighbors sometimes and talking to kids, yet I was not very much uh, active at being, you know, practicing the Bahasa Indonesia because of my own situation once. I was absolutely, you know, engaged in my own activities, writing, and uh, I wouldn't, I, 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 did not meet, I did not visit a lot of places in, in Indonesia because once I cannot travel to, I cannot afford, so I can, uh, and, uh, I don't know. And third, I've been absolutely occupied and I, and, I, and, I, and I did not waste my time in Indonesia while I was in Indonesia, actively being producing and do from 2014 until 2019, I've written 1,000 poems 
and, uh, and those poems needed time, of course. So I would go to the learning center and I would teach the ladies from 12 o'clock up to seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night. And then I would immediately return. And then I sometimes, if I had something, I would eat. And if not, then I would just go with that and I would stop writing, lock myself inside the room and just stop writing. And that's how I produced these poems. Therefore, I am, you know, this is one of the reasons that I did not learn Bahasa Indonesia very well. Remains a little bit disconnected, not very much sociable. I'm not very much sociable in per personally also. Yet I'm not, it, it does not mean that I'm not friendly. I, I can be friendly at the same time. I'm, I'm really curious about this women's program that you teach. Is it a program under an organization or did you yes. initiate it? No, no, it was uh, under GRS, Jesuit Refugee Service in Bogor. So they have provided the space, they have provided the, the, the materials, and I was voluntarily teaching and those women without asking for any single amount of money except transportation of like 15,000, 10,000, that's all. Mm. Uh, so and been... are the classes, are the lessons just uh, poetry writing or do they also no, get no, 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 no. I never taught poetry and I'm not in a position to, uh, to, to write poetry and I can never dare to do that. And I have been asked and I have been approached by people to, you know, write poetry but I'm not in that position I, I cannot dare to do that and I not I'm not I'm not going to allow myself to do that yes I can share what I have been uh, my best practices my lesson learned and I can share what I have been doing what I have been how I have been writing the process and everything the procedures yet I will never allow myself to to teach uh, poetry so this is a very prestigious to me stage to me and, and I have a lot of respect for the authors poets creative people who done so much before and uh, I'm not going to yeah yeah I feel too weak and I feel too 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 low to be able to feel that uh, is there that, anyone else uh, besides you teaching only, teaching only uh, basic English to those refugees ah, I see mm -hmm. and uh, I'm, I'm curious about who are the people that you want to read your poetry the most like your poems uh, well I remember on the NYU conversation, you mentioned about Kid Soldier. Do you wish for them to read your poetry, like your poems? Not really, not specifically to uh, Kid Soldiers uh, who have done so much in Afghanistan, who have lost their, their lives in Afghanistan. And I have dedicated a poem to those great people, heroes who have done something in, in my country. Uh, but uh, my my target is not a specific community, specific country or specific people. It is anyone uh, who, who reads my poetry and poems. And uh, it, is, it, is, it is a plea, you know, it is, uh, it is a desperate plea for, 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 uh, for kindness, compassion. And uh, it is nothing more than that. So I don't have any specific, specific audience, but perhaps, yeah, anyone who, uh, who have, you know, strong belief uh, that uh, refugees are as human beings as they are and that refugees have certain rights and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, feelings and emotions as they do. And uh, those who feel that uh, human lives matter, it is not only about one specific geographical uh, 
uh, people's life, that people of all colors and coming from different countries, and specifically refugees who are fleeing persecution with so many wounds. Uh, that's just, that's what I that's what I have to say. So I'm curious, um, since you mentioned that published the wrong version, and Jinjin Jin told me too um, that the publisher had published the wrong version of the book, and then they have exclusive rights and everything. Basically, like what what can we do to help like if listeners wanted to help spread your book is there anything that we can do both people in indonesia and outside of indonesia uh, well i personally believe that the publisher has an exclusive right over the book as long as both the parties remain committed to the clauses in the contract uh, in case anyone breaches the contract the terms and conditions would not be able to claim an exclusive right over the book, I guess. And so there are challenges that I don't dare to talk about here. But yes, the best possible assistance would be to help uh, to help us republish the work written in overseas, since it does not have the facility where the origins can get the book. I have been dealing with this myself along with my foster father, Dr. Austin and a few other friends buying the books and dispatching them to individuals outside the country. Uh, yes, anyone can help, can also help uh, me uh, connecting to literary festival, fe festivals or academic events where I can have the chance to introduce the work ribbon. Uh, as I always say, the work ribbon is not the vice uh, my voice alone, but the voice of the entire refugee community and the voice of uh, humankind uh, from here and uh, across the world. And this book needs to be promoted to give the people a hint of what refugees are going through, uh, so to overcome the misunderstanding about the refugees. That's what I can I can plead even. Have your mothers or your families received or read your poems? Ah. Uh... What should I say? My my father is uh, uh, is not uh, here and uh, uh, with us. And then uh, my grandmother has also has passed away a long time ago. My mother is uh, my mother never received my siblings. My mother and my siblings never received uh, any copy of. The wet ribbon, but my mother is more worried about now because she does not have a good experience about my journalism in Kabul. She's extremely concerned about my safety rather than celebrating the publication of the wet ribbon. To, red ribbon, to be very honest, the first time I talked to uh, uh, my mother after we published the wet ribbon, she constantly said, uh, "You know, why do you put yourself and others at risk?" Isn't it enough uh, for you with what have happened to us? Why don't you stop doing it? You know, she's not happy. You know, uh, with what I am doing, yet you know, there's no other way, and I something that I cannot stop doing. So, when you were working as a journalist, did you also have the sentiment? about oh you know let's just lay low let's just not speak up um don't write no about... no 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 she did not know until they have been attacked in the village in the home 
My mother, my siblings, they have been attacking. There are, there are scars on the forehead of my mother when they hit with the back, uh, with the uh, uh, with the uh, with the clashing curve and stole. Uh, there's this big scar and that caused her a little bit of you know not being the same person as I I knew. And she's a little bit. She you have to repeat things for her to understand, and you have to uh, to speak louder for her to understand. She's absolutely unlike what I have known her before because of that traumatizing thing and because of, you know, maybe the, 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 the heat on her, her forehead was so weak and very heavy, strong, and because of that she's, you know, kind of not like, you know, yeah, she's absolutely well, but only you have to repeat things and you only, sometimes you have to repeat things and sometimes you have to speak louder for her to understand. During that time she never knew and she never, you know, asked me to stop doing what I was doing until in 2010 when my father, the first time my father and my elder brother were, were kidnapped. And then after, you know, things have gone absolutely wrong, out of our control, we're receiving, you know, threatening calls, you know, letters, you know, once in a while, you know, every now and then we were receiving, you know, it is something, you know, that I, I got used to that, but I would never tell my mother everything that I was facing there because until you know horrible things happened and it was too late to stop doing what I was what I was doing. You know, there was no chance for that. Everybody was traumatized and you know thinking about safety, thinking about how to escape, and thinking about you know remaining alive. And it was there was no time. Everybody was just extremely traumatized, badly traumatized. That you know there was no way, there was no chance to talk about who to blame and who not to blame and you know to do what you know you lose. You know it is it is. It was a situation where you know you lose the directions, you lose you know a very you know you know concentration. You cannot think clearly. You cannot say things you know very wisely. You just take a very sudden decision. It is like a house in a fire without uh, anywhere to specifically to escape. You don't see the north, south, east. You know, just jam. You know, all you do is just save yourself. And that kind of situation, nothing you know comes in your head properly to think properly you know? you're scared you're traumatized you you have losses and all things like that so so you've been talking about this tragedy pain and what is your idea of an ideal world if you could mm. like a picture of what what an ideal world look like to you uh, to have a place i call home and live at peace with family right uh, to travel to every part of it without being worried that they would kill me. A world where I am treated on the quality of my own being. A world free of discrimination, war, where I don't witness bloodshed anymore. A world where every human is treated equally without anyone's physical or sexual orientation. A world where everyone treats each other with, with love respect, dignity, and compassion, and of course, a world where one sees an injustice escapes in instead of turning a back or just watching from a distance and promulgating or, you know, uh, giving opinions like a wheelchair soldier. Yeah, that's my ideal world. Yeah, I guess uh, all of us want that as well. Guess what? Because we live in America and now we're dealing with um, the the election, so yeah. it's a bit noisy in the way that people are fighting each other, and 
yeah, the situation is very uncomfortable for me as a non-citizen. Yeah. And I guess, um, Abdul, you can read a poem or two, um, and then we'll close it up. Sure, I would like to recite a poem called The Summary of My Life. And this talks about my personal feeling. This talks about how I feel, how it feels to be a refugee. And, uh, you know, uh, I just described the situation in a very simple way. It's called Summary of My Life. Time still runs somehow, but all in vain. Heart is chopped, and the dirges of uncertainty. It has shackled me, and I hold only pain. There is no sense of their seasons anymore. Every spring we wears the autumn gown. It is cold as the aggrieved winter. Pale as the mother's bombed fields. There's no light ahead. Nobody here to call. I'm almost lost. I am lost, perishing in chains. There's nothing left to live for. Breathing hurts. I melt in the, in the arms of flames. The free birds too disappear, excusing to, pre, to bring water, to bring back life. Life is like a dead tree, and I am its frozen petal, welting. I am a wide petal and vertical. February 23, 2019. And uh, the next poem that I am going to uh, recite is a dedication to, to the spouse of the U.S. ambassador to Indonesia, which is called Ode to Madam Major Denevan. A fathomless sea of rich human love, in you resides the substance of God. And when I meet you, it feels as if I visit the holy temple. Your heart is a protective house. Lips recite verses of mercy, the early matins. Through your God's word seed, helping to open silent hearts to dare the night storm. You are a, a clear brook traveling down the valleys, punchak spreading kindness to neighbors you barely knew, neighbors who held dim candles instead of lamps to convince themselves that new, a new day will dawn, that the mighty sun is still renews. You are a vast sky, clear and calm. Through you shines the golden parts of hope upon bruised refugees with feeders burned off those abyss naive opening cages as you bid this goodbye you still command the sunshine to smile over our beclouded roofs you still charge the mad moon to stream across our darkened alleyways dear, dear major ask again for the sun and moon to repeat the singing of the song of liberty. We are longing to hear it. Uh, February 1st, 2020.
uh, this was written in that time. Well, thank you for reciting your two amazing poems. Um, well, I guess like we should do um, fun questions. Oh, right, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, less serious stuff. We, we were curious like what your favorite Indonesian food is. Uh-huh. Well, it is, uh, of course, Nasi Padang. Uh, I have a memory with this, with this book. I was, uh, I remember sometimes in 2018, I was very weak. I was sick and starving. Uh, when one day, one of the GRS members getting, took me to a, a Padang restaurant after uh, an, interpreta- an interpretation. I was interpreting for the refugee communities on one kind of impulsations. We left and he said, I can give you a lift if you're going down. I said, of course. And then he asked me to, when he took me to, uh, he said, let's eat something. Let's eat something. I'm so hungry. And I said, of course, let's, let's eat. And then we went to Nasi Padang restaurant and uh, in a Padang, uh, Padang restaurant. And then he asked me to choose, uh, but I could not dare to say I want this specific food. I was starving very badly. And I did not have, I did not eat for some time, you know, something like that because I was only surviving on carrot and biscuits and these were these were the things that I was surviving you know in rotten type of carrots I was buying very cheap and borrowing biscuits from Ibu Warung I still go there when I go to Bogor I still go and pay a visit to Ibu Warung and I still pay a visit to my landlord they have been extremely kind to me and we finally agreed to eat nasi parang so that was my first time eating nasi parang it was uh, the most delicious food I have eaten for some time. I, I ate first very quickly and I finished quicker than him, uh, but did not dare to ask for more, though I was still hungry. You know, I was just I, deep inside. I was just longing and I was just wanting to have some more of that uh, nasi pudding because I was, it was for some time trying something oily and neat and you know, something nice. That is, this memory will always remain with me. Yeah, that's my favorite food, Indonesian favorite food. Yeah, I think nasi padang is the best. It's like one of the universal Indonesian dishes. Do you, do yes. you think that mm. now that you're in Jakarta, you, you can get by just with speaking English? Uh, well, I can also communicate a little bit in Bahasa Indonesia, so I can easily buy nasi padang here. Uh, but because yeah. of the COVID-19, I have not been eating much out. Yeah. Um, yes, I have been, I have tried several times after that. It's, it's funny because like for people from the, people from outside of Jakarta make fun mm. of Jakarta people. Like I'm from Jakarta and people always make fun of Jakarta people because they're like, oh, you guys only speak English and you guys don't speak Bahasa Indonesia. That's like the the stereotype about Jakarta people. And so I have, um, I have good neighbors from Jakarta. And, so, and if I, uh, if I ever survive, I'm going to produce something nice about my experience about the Indonesian people and the, in spite of so many challenges mm. and everything yet, yet there are a lot of good things to talk about and a lot of good things to be grateful about and a lot of love and support I received from my Indonesian friends to talk about. If I ever survive and get a chance to leave, then yes, I would write. And I have good things about Jakarta. Jakarta is absolutely beautiful. 
you don't how mind about the tra about the traffic? I never mind. You know, the Jakarta is the whole beauty of Jakarta is with the crowd. You know, the traffic jam. You know, just imagine if Jakarta was absolutely empty. You know, houses here and houses there, and you could barely see people. You know, just imagine. And every few meters, you know, you 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 see people. You know, it just feels so good. I don't know. It is maybe because of because I feel more secure uh, in the crowded area and I feel more safe in the crowd. Yeah. I love this crowd and this traffic jam. Just when I go out and I just, I'm just caught by every single thing that I see in the street, type of the streets, you know, people, reaction, you know, the lights, you know, the green lights, you know, the red lights and everything I see just, I, I, I really love, I really love Jakarta. Have, have you tried? Have you tried the new train? Uh, no, not really. And my friends ever asked me to do that, but you know, caught, you know, got caught for the, you know, in between with the red ribbon, green these and that and that and then and I did not have the chance. And once I was a little bit, you know, uh, relaxed, then we had the COVID nineteen, and then after yeah. that, stopped commuting, commuting uh more so yeah, i yeah. ever yeah talk about that when i see that yeah it's not well what is your favorite place in jakarta well every part of jakarta and uh space especially plaza snayan uh because i with my foster father we edited the red ribbon we cried together we laughed together we you know, we talk together, we, we eat together there, we walk together there. So that is quite special to me. And like a father, he always would feed me, you know, take me to the, go eat this, Abdul eat this, Abdul eat that, you know. And I have good memories from that area. And only because of his love, support and encouragement, I was only, I was able to uh, publish the word ribbon. Otherwise, I would. I would never be able to publish the word ribbon, you know. A refugee like me, connected? you know, just disappears, you know. How did you get connected with him? And also your um, New Zealand foster mother? Uh, well, I I got connected by by Jinjin, and Jinjin is a very loving and dear friend of mine. And I was teaching at that time refugee woman, and then she came to Google and she visited that uh activities related to women and then she uh had from someone that i was writing poetry and then she came and then we chatted together for a while and we exchanged some poetry poems and we recited a few poems and she was so interested and she was so touched by these poems and then i was i i, I really struggled a lot in jakarta a lot of people i don't name famous people i met and i asked them you know uh, to edit my my, my work and, you know, the moment people would come to know that I am a refugee and then I cannot afford to pay and stuff, these and that, people would disappear like the spring, like the rain in the spring season, you know, comes quickly and disappears very quickly. The promises, a lot of promises. And then uh, she said, I was almost, uh, at the time, I was almost, I have almost given up, you know, I was stopped, I stopped writing. And then Jinjin, I, I explained the situation with very openly and very friendly and then she said well Abdul I don't promise anything yet I try my best to connect you with someone whom, uh, whom I have known for some time and he is a very great editor and then she introduced me after a few 
days, I think. And then when she introduced me to the spouse of an ambassador, and I was, I, I, I literally did not believe that I, I said, well, maybe Jinjin is just making fun of me or something because uh, spouse of ambassador is going to see the refugees. It's not going to happen. And I'm no one at the end of the day, uh, except, you know, a bloody refugee and that's all. That's my entitlement. And he's not going to sit with me. And then he contacted me and he, Jinjin introduced and I contacted him. He contacted me and I contacted him. And then we met and the first time we had, you know, big glass of beer together in Plaza Snayan. And then uh, we enjoyed that conversation. It was very smooth, very lovely. And I found him very interesting. And then after that, uh, I disappeared because I still thought that, well, he's not going to sit with me. And so at the same time, I was... I was not able to afford to travel from Bogor to Jakarta because I did not have that, you know, money to travel. And I disappeared and then he contacted me again and then, yes, and then we, we moved on and we made and then, yes, he paid me the travel cost and he, after two months or three months, he asked me, Abdul, where do you live? And I said, I'm living in this area and how long does it take you? And I said, but sometimes three hours, sometimes four hours only from one, one from, from here to back to Bogor because of the traffic jump, wind track and this and that. Sometimes two hours, sometimes, you know, three hours. Three hours. <laughs> and then uh, and sometimes more than more than three hours and four uh, Friday nights and Saturday nights. Okay. And then uh, he said, and he asked a lot. And then I explained the type of the house that I'm leaving, you know, the scorpions that I was living with. You know, the creepy type of house, you know, with all water can inside the house and broken land, you know. Yeah, it was a dark place, a very, 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 very dark place. And then I explained everything and then he said, uh, I wrote a few poems about the, uh, the snake and I wrote about scorpions walking on my face, like big black scorpion. And then he asked me, then why don't you move to Jakarta? And I said, well, I cannot, of course I cannot support, afford to move to Jakarta. And then somehow, you know, things have been arranged and then he helped me live in Jakarta. And since then, yeah, I've been living, yeah, a very, very uh, uh, normal life yet. Yes, but with a lot of traumas and depression, everything yet still dealing. But at the end of the day, no one is beside me when I am falling down. Nobody is beside me when I am uh, screaming at night. Do you I live alone? Up. Yeah, I live alone. And then, yeah, I fight my own civil wars in my head all alone, so no one can be that. You get help with medications or you get a therapist or something? Uh, not with a the therapist. Uh, I have been under medication since 2017. I was, uh, I am constantly, I was constantly visiting psychiatrists, but not constantly on and off because it would take a lot of time to find another sponsor to sponsor my medication since I was not able to support myself. And then I, yeah, I asked a lot of organizations they did not respond except GRS. The GRS took me two times and then they said, well, it is something, an ongoing thing and it is not one time or two times. So GRS also stopped supporting me. And then I was left alone again until I met some friends and then they, yeah, it was on and off, but I was under medication since 2017. Formerly I was diagnosed with the PTSD and depression in 2017, but I had those things from a very long time. And uh, right now, yeah, my psychologist, he supports my uh, medication. He pays for my medication, but I don't meet 
the psychiatrist in person and the medicines are sent. Yes, I'm just trying to survive with these medicines from now. Right, so if there is a listener out there who wants to help you, how can they contact you? Uh, they can contact me through my number. They can contact me through my email address, which is uh, abdulsamad.haydari96 at gmail.com. A-B-D-U-L-S-A-M-A-D dot H-A-I-D-A-R-I 96 at gmail.com. So that's how they can reach me. If there's anyone who's willing to connect me to people who are responsible refugees to other countries, that would be, you know, that would be something I would, I am, you know, craving for right now because uh, the medication, the diagnosis that I receive from the doctors and from the specialists, they all ask for a better environment. They all ask for better treatment, which is not available in Indonesia. When I had submitted those letters to UNHCR, and uh, I still did not hear anything. So, yeah, if there could be someone doing something to save my life, it would be absolutely fine. I would adore that. Well, if you would like to get in touch with Abdul directly, we have included his website and his email on sugarnutmeg.com. As always, here at Sugar Nutmeg, we encourage you to dig deeper and ask more questions about the topics we talked about. We want to thank Abdul again for taking the time to chat with us, even through his PTSD and depression. Thanks for listening. And until our next feast, this is Ruth. And this is Alexandra. Alexandra.